I think the thing that I loved about The Wire and that made it so consistently great isn't necessarily the stories but the characters and The Wire again it's amazing it, a, a series I, I got into after The Wire had ended was Justified and it's because of a similar thing the character writing was just amazing you could have in The Wire you can have episodes where the story hasn't developed much but you've been engaged because you the characters are written so well and it made me think of The Wire because The Wire is about a wire they put a wire on a phone and by the time you're doing the docks and you're doing the the, the schools and the newspapers and all that it's, it's nothing to do with The Wire anymore but it's The Wire like you forget that it's got a very specific reason for its name but the characters and stories are written so well that you can move away from that initial a, a premise I think it's a good thing I, I think if Justified or The Wire had stuck too tightly to oh we've got a phone tap everyone it would have ruined it the fact that they could walk away from their initial premise in in in, in favour of the greater stories was yeah a wonderful thing hello everybody my name's Kobe and I'm Dave and you're listening to The Wire Strips and we're re-watching every episode of HBO's The Wire and we're also talking to the cast and crew and some celebrity voices who are fans in this episode we're going to be talking about season 1 episode 5 The Pager here's our chat which we recorded on the streets of London when you walk through the garden you gotta watch your back well I beg your pardon walk the straight and narrow track when you walk with Jesus he's gonna save your soul just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole He got the fire and the fury Alright, so we're back We're back in the pits <laughs> For episode 5 the streets The pager uh, So this was, uh, this was a pretty good episode There's a lot to talk about here um, the, What do we so got? What do we got? On the cop side Yep We had sort of three main storylines uh, The first one was Well, it's the, the cloned pager Yes. Pages are up and running. So the ideas that have been proliferating with, with Freeman and with McNulty about cloning the pages comes to fruition and they, and they press they press go on it, don't they? Yeah, literally, there's, a, there's literally a moment where they press whatever. Ultimately, it seems like a massive pain in the ass. Yeah, because how does it work? Maybe we need a whole section uh, on how know, pages yeah. work. So I think like the, someone rings your pager and that, t- that gives you a number to ring. So then you find a phone to ring it. Wow. <laughs> it's like the equivalent of being poked on Facebook, isn't it? Yeah, so you poke yeah. someone back. <laughs> yeah, it's just pointless. Um, so, yeah, the judge signs the affidavit. It's up and running. We we see <laughs> we see them just all waiting around for D'Angelo to get a, to get a page. <laughs> and, yeah, so the, the surveillance has officially started. Yeah, and this is where the kind of detail takes a notch up. And initially, everyone doesn't understand what the hell is going on because they're getting strange numbers through the pager. The pages aren't the the numbers coming through the pages aren't the phone numbers that you would get in Baltimore. Strange exchange numbers, and Freeman figures out that it's a code. Freeman f- says it's a code. There must be a code, and who cracks the code? Presbyluski. Presbyluski. The code finally proves himself useful. Presbyluski, who is one of the humps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that description. The hump. Uh, but yeah, he has his sort of his own Lester Freeman moment. Absolutely, doesn't he? Where they they get back to the office. 
He does. He kind of goes about it in such a dweeby way. <laughs> he does a dweeby drop drop the mic moment, doesn't he? Because he's like, "Hey, did you get the did you get the page I sent you, McNulty?" And I sent one to you too, gamer. And they're like, "No, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you still here?" <laughs> yeah, why? <well, laughs> what are you still doing here, you you, you hump? And uh, yeah, and he and he breaks out how the how he cracked the code because he's into crossword puzzle, not crossword. He's into word search word puzzles. Word search puzzles, yeah. And that's how he figured out how the code works uh, with the yo's on the streets. And then it's crossing the five. Yeah, it's quite simple. It's five. very effective. I yeah, think. I do like absolutely. it. I like word search puzzles. You know where you got to find the hidden words. So I thought. I could do the same thing with the numbers. <laughs> take the number I sent you. Now, take the seven, jump it over the five. You get three. Jump the one over the five. You get nine. With four, you get six. Three, that's seven. Four is six. A three again. And two is eight. Zero switches with the five. So seven one four three four three two is three nine six seven six seven eight our number. And this is where you start to see that combination of, of Prez and Freeman working together, which is a source of a massive grin every time I see them working together. <laughs> yeah. They're very much the mentor and idiot relationship. But Prez, Prez comes into his own quite a lot. Uh, you know, from someone who was showboating uh, so much and trying to sort of fit himself into this mold of what he thought a police officer should be, yeah. Look like. uh, he's finally sort of, he's finally settled into to the desk work and the paperwork and but, it suits him. I thought it was done amazingly because it's a code that the police hadn't been able to crack. This is Scroobius Pip. He's a podcaster at the Distraction Pieces podcast. But you have to realistically believe that a load of street kids are using it. So it can't be this big complex thing. And it's the beautiful simplicity of jumping the five that you just move over it and it, it translates it. It made me, I had, um, I had this guy, Simon Singh, on my podcast and he brought in an Enigma machine and he told me how they cracked the Enigma code and it was a similar thing of simplicity is what is what broke it so just n- not to ramble on too much but with the Enigma code when the Germans were sending these encoded messages it's on this machine it's all set up in a way that you can could, could never figure out but they couldn't only send messages when something was about to happen because even if you can't read it you'd intercept it and go Oh, there's been five messages today. Something's going on, so they'd send messages like every hour or something, and and they n- n- noticed that on one message, say it's a hundred characters long, there wasn't a single K, and that's impossible unless K was the only letter that was used. So because the Enigma machine would you you set all the cogs and dials and it'd jump to a different letter so from that they could then backwards engineer it to figure out how they had their enigma machine set up and it was all because of that because that simplicity because someone because they had to send a message had just gone k k k k k k k k k k k and it was like right now we know that and i love that i love the the idea of the simplicity of these things that it's it's not the fact is if there's a million different combinations then you could never actually figure that out 
what you have to figure out is the is the simple the simple part of humans and that's what i loved on the jump the five it's that simplicity it's like right no it's just it's a photo even if photo a copies the phone to translate it like to figure it out it's like yeah i love that prez 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 what a fascinating character arc for the whole show this is andrew johnston an academic and podcaster from maryland prez cannot be allowed on the streets that is clearly proven immediately but he demonstrates that you know there's more than one way to skin a cat that the police department should be fostering this kind of talent lester's the only person who realizes oh no this kid can do math we need math. We need him to be doing math and puzzle solving. Like, that's police work. Uh, and that's sort of Prez's job. Like, let Hurricane Carver go knock kids up. And uh, uh, I guess gentler police brutality. I mean, they kind of mess Bodie up a couple times pretty badly. But, uh, you know, you need this this Prez Belusky type character if we're going to make the wire work. Kind of. He fills out the team, despite being a complete fuck up. But that's what I mean. That that the partnership between Prez and and Freeman becomes. This is where it kind of starts working properly. And, yeah. to, and between them both, they they are the source of lots of awesome shit. That they they break open a lot of the cases, and a lot of things that are going on comes between this partnership between Prez and Freeman. They're the brains. Yeah, they're, they're the brain. They are the brains. With her can cover it's more the like muscle. Pinky in the brain. Pinky really. in the brain. Present <laughs> 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 the brain. Chief Brain, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Then in our second Cops storyline, we're over with Herc and Carver, who are continuing the hunt for Bodhi. Always a pleasure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they, they catch him and uh, it, find him in the pits. Yep. I mean, that's where he was always going to be, isn't it? Yeah, oh, of course he's going <laughs> to. Like he, es- he escapes yeah. and goes back to what he knows, and uh, and they take him for processing. 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 Yeah. Except, I love all. See, I love all these little admin details. Like yeah. The the juvenile intakes officer only comes in at eight and, and twelve. Yeah. And so they're stuck with him for four hours. But first, we get this brilliant scene where they have him in an interrogation room. Yeah. And they they were talking last episode about, you know, all their high hopes for how they were going to flip him. (laughs) uh, And they they have this sort of good cop, bad cop thing. Yeah, they discuss before going into interrogation. Carver's like, I'll be good cop. Herc, you come in later. You be bad cop. And it's kind of working (laughs) well, isn't it? It's like uh, Carver's saying, "Yeah, yeah, I know where you come from. I'm from the streets as well, man. Do you actually think he's from the streets? I don't or know, he, actually. Because think... he's so insincere <laughs> about the whole thing. He's a ba- like he's a terrible actor. No, no, the, the actual actor is a good actor. Yeah. But Carver acting as the good cop is <laughs> not bad... convincing. <laughs> and Bodie riles him and Carver starts kicking him in the face. Yeah, instantly loses his good cop persona, becomes the bad cop. And then Herc follows in, and is also the bad cop. They're sort of there's this there's this sort of uh, Morcom and Wise <laughs> duo, really. They're just a comedy duo, these two. But they're in a sort of horrible, brutal, brutal sort of way. And but, then they take it to play pool. Yeah, so they're waiting around, and uh, Bodie sort of says, you know, oh, you can't, uh, you guys are shit at pool. <laughs> take the handcuffs off. Um, I, don't, I thought we were going to get more of them playing pool. Yeah, I, thought, sorry, I, I like that. Bodie's not as good as we expected. Like they just did beat him. I thought, yeah, I thought you thought he's going to be, you thought it's going to be um, Paul Newman from 
from <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. player or the grift or whichever one it was. Hello, producer Tom here, just interjecting with some fact-checking. Kobe is in fact referring to The Hustler from 1961, but you knew that. But they totally, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, shit. he's pretty shit, yeah. and they take, they take, what, $60 off him <laughs> or something. Um, harsh. I like that. I like that this sort of levels the playing field with the three of them. They're just some dudes yeah. shooting pool at the end of the day. Absolutely. They're, they're not so different, the three of them. Okay. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> Can't let your duty officer see that. You want to give it a rest, man? You down 60. That might be your whole damn salary, but I clocked that shit in minutes. Rag him and break him. You the guys waiting for juvenile intake? He's in the squad room. I had more time, I'll run you. Mm-hmm. Give you a tip, Preston. You wanna run a hustle? Best stay with what you know. Then um, the last storyline um, with the cop side of things is is kind of Omar. It's um, Bubbles telling uh, Keeman McNulty about Omar's van, and they they decide to stake it out. Yeah. They're also hoping to they're they're hoping to catch him with a gun charge, and then they can and, flip, and flip him, him and turn him into an informant. Uh, but Omar's too clever for that. Omar knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. So He's he lures them to a graveyard yeah. for, for a parlay. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love all the lingo they have. Um, McNulty tells Omar that Bailey's been killed. Yep, so we've we've lost John Bailey, who's the third member of uh, Omar's crew. Yeah, off screen. Yeah, off screen. He's well. capped, capped off screen. Ignominious end for Bailey. And Omar reveals to them that... Uh, gives them a little nice bit of information that Bird was the one who killed the witness yeah. from episode one, William Gant. Gant. And also a brief insight, so Omar knows exactly what's going on here because he says, if you don't know who Bird is, speak to your snitch. Yeah. Bubbles knows, Bubbles who, knows, <laughs> Bubbles knows who Bird is. Omar's so badass. He just knows everything that's going on everywhere. Um, so, yeah, again. It's the eyes and the ears of the streets. It's the eyes and ears. And that's why he's so smart. And you see him in scenes walking down, you see him walking down the street with the gun out with his Kevlar vest and no one's touching because he knows exactly how the street works he knows when to play the game he knows when to step out and to when to attack things and right, he's got that badass whistle exactly the, he's just so casual isn't the he? farmer in the Dell I think is the tune is it? yeah oh that nice bit of trivia there you go and um, this is I think the first time we hear Omar phrase, coming Omar coming yeah Yeah. sorry I took that out of your voice you yeah. can say that <laughs> no I like the way you did it much better oh, so come on your Omar's coming man yeah, oh shit Uh, which we're going to hear a lot more of, I think, from memory. <laughs> across the, yeah, across yeah. the rest of the series. Man's got to have a code, exactly. It's beautiful. But I love, again, I love in his codes that things like his whistling, it's beautiful cinematically, but it's also, he's not sneaking up on anyone. He's being, it, it's that, I always remember hearing that when crossbows were invented, the British army or soldiers or knights or whatever refused to use them for years because it was seen as unfair whereas a bow and arrow took skill a crossbow you just point and, sh- and shoot so it was unsportsmanlike it's kind of, of, of what he's doing there he's not sneaking up on anyone he's being in almost all of his his fights or his, his interactions he's like I'm coming to shoot you now here's what's happening I'm putting it all out there I'm not being sneaky I'm coming and here's what I'm doing and his intentions are a, a, a painted out there for everyone to see 
I love it. Then over on the the street side of things, we we get to see a little bit more of Barksdale's paranoia. Yeah. Don't we? Like he's super paranoid. That's the cold open, isn't it? It's uh, Barksdale leaving one of his hussies' house. <laughs> I'm going to continue to say hussies throughout like this it. whole show. I like it. Um, and you know he's looking out the he's looking out the, the curtains. He sees a couple of uh, teenagers yep. <laughs> across the road. And Could he, they be police? Who knows? Yep. He's very paranoid. And he gets... Even uh, Weebay says to him, you know, do we need this level of paranoia? To which he basically says yes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But that's how they get, that's how they rose to the top from being so cautious. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that's what makes him so difficult. That's why they need the detail. That's why the police need the detail to catch him because they have got no idea what's going on. And we get this other scene with Barksdale where he and D'Angelo visit Barksdale's brother in um, in a retirement home. So it's a retirement home. It's in a, it's in a hospice or something. It's, it's, hospice, yeah. It's it's been it's been heavily injured. I think brain damage is part of being part of the game, isn't it? And that's what kind of spurs Avon to be super careful and and helps him actually kind of rise to the top. Yeah, and he's giving some sort of valuable life lessons to D'Angelo here, and it's, and it's all about the fragility of life. Yeah, and, you know, anything can happen to you at any minute, and it's out of your control. It's quite a sad, a sad scene. scene. Yeah. Then speaking of D'Angelo, we get a little bit more of D'Angelo on the back in the pits. He gets a lecture from from Stringer Bell about trying to find the snitch that Stringer Bell is convinced that a, they have. Yeah. So he, get, he tells him this little sort of trick don't pay anyone and then whoever is still eating basically <laughs> there's the, the snitch it's quite a simple uh, I'm not sure how effective that method is but I, li- I like the, I like Stringer Bell's sort of simple tactics absolutely yeah then later on we see Putin Wallace are hanging out in an arcade and they see Brandon from Omar's crew they see Brandon yeah the, the second member of Omar's crew he's Omar's boyfriend at this point yeah. see him hanging around playing pinball and they're very aware of the £4,000 uh, reward on, on anyone's head. And they bring it in. And they're good foot soldiers. And they're good foot soldiers, yeah. So and then it uh, goes up the chain. We see a lot of pager action. I, lo- I love how they told this uh, largely through the, the computers back in the... In the offices, yeah. The office, yeah. So all the police are out. All the police are back home now. And the, but the pager, the pager tap is... Work, the pager cloning is working. Poots and Wallace ring D'Angelo Bartsdale. D rings Stringer. Stringer brings the crew. Stringer rings uh, back uh, D'Angelo and says it's been sorted and this is all captured unbeknownst to the police at this point but this has all been captured in the in the, in the computers and it's quite an awkward sort of uh, communication method I feel is. like a WhatsApp group would have solved <laughs> would have, yeah. all their problems if we were set in 20, 2017 yeah. there would be a WhatsApp group that's encrypted yeah it's got peer-to-peer uh, <laughs> <laughs> encryption <laughs> So what do you want to talk about for this episode? What else do you want to bring up there? There was that uh, uh, scene with Johnny Weeks. Johnny Weeks is back. Johnny Weeks is back and he's in the hospice, I guess, after being after, yeah, after recovering from being beaten up by Bodie and the guys in the pit after episode one, wasn't it? So we've not seen him for a long time. Oh, no, yeah. So Bubbles visits him. Yeah. It's quite... It's a bit It's a bit sad. Johnny's clearly down in the dumps. Yeah. But... Um, He's going to Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. He's got a colostomy bag. Yeah. Like it, things, things are not. Things are. It's quite. It's quite depressing. Um, but the, it's sad. What's even more depressing, I thought, was that the only time he cheers up was at the prospect of getting back out on the street. Yeah. And getting. He asks Bubbles, "Where's the good? 
gear at these days. And this is especially because we find out he he finds out he's um, HIV positive. Yeah, he's got the bug, as they call it, and it doesn't seem it doesn't seem it seems nonplussed by that, and he just wants to get back at the game. Starts wants to shoot up again, and I don't know how long it takes you to recover from any kind of heroin addiction, but he must be fairly clean at this point. He must kind of he, this could be an opportunity for anyone else to kind of say that's me done I'm out of it but he just wants to dive straight back in again the thing about heroin is it, it's uh, it's an opiate this is Professor David Nutt he's a psychologist and a pharmacologist it goes into the brain and it, there are, in your brain there are receptors which heroin works on and, and those receptors are there to deaden pain and deaden distress and uh, normally there are chemicals in the brain called endorphins which do that but heroin does it so fast and so much more powerfully than the endorphins it, that it actually, we say, hijacks the endorphin system. So you end up being uh, having an effect which is greater than you would get from other things like exercise or sex or whatever. But then it's like you've opened the door to something that is very, very desirable and powerful. And then it closes again. And you can't get back without taking heroin again. So you get into this cycle of use. And after a while, actually the the pleasure becomes a bit less. But when you stop using, you go into withdrawal. And, you know, there was good examples of that in the wire. And you see, I mean, withdrawal is very unpleasant. Mm. You know, I mean, you're shaking, you're sweating, you're shitting, you know, you're, you've got terrible pains in your bones, etc. You know, you people don't want that. So people are desperate not to. So the fear of withdrawal is eventually is what drives people to a lot of people to continue using heroin because because they just can't face the misery of withdrawal. Yeah, so I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist. I, I'm, I spent my whole life looking at addiction, drugs in the brain. So, done a lot of research around drug addiction, but and a lot around heroin addiction. Yeah. So, you know, it's the wire was really kind of, um, I mean, a, a, an example. You know, I mean, almost a, a documentary on on what that is about, and and of course, coming to it from the my perspective, which is a pharmacologist, what the drug does in the brain. Yeah. You actually see in the wire that there's a lot more to drug abuse than just what the drug does. Yeah. The fact it's part of a, a, a you know an, a social climate. Uh, it, there's so, there are social norms about it. There are opportunities for doing something other than being unemployed. It, there's a career path which can take you up to being very rich and successful. So you know I, I, it emphasizes what I've kind of believed, and other other experts in the field have argued for a long time that. That in communities like Baltimore, where there is nothing else, yeah. dealing drugs is a kind of, if not rational, it's an, it's basically the only thing that you can do. So, if you want to stop people drug dealing, you got to give them something else to do. Otherwise, they will drug deal. In Baltimore, I mean, now uh, every night on the evening news, the local news, it's always overdose deaths and the heroin epidemic and things like that, and it's gotten probably five times worse than even the time of The Wire. So one of our listeners actually reached out to us recently, and it turns out that he is a recovering heroin addict himself from Baltimore, and he wanted to tell us his side of the story. Yep, this guy, we'll call him Paul, and his wife went through a lot of these experiences uh, recovering from heroin at the same time as the actual Wire is set in the same parts of Baltimore. And we thought his story was really important to portray here. So we 
we spent some time with him and we thought we'd want to share his experiences with you guys as well. At that time, uh, you had a, an opiate epidemic starting out because doctors were handing out painkillers like candy. I mean, in the U.S. back then, if you went in, oh, my knee hurts, oh, well, here's some Percocets, go home, you know. And over time, the market was so flooded with them that people started to take them recreationally, not knowing what you were getting into. I mean, myself personally, I was at the end of college, and uh, I had always smoked weed and drank, and I mean, I'd sold a little bit of weed and things like that. year, this was probably... Uh, 2005-ish, and uh, uh, just, you know, partying, drinking, really, you know, just doing that type of stuff, smoking and everything, and, you know, somebody brings around a pill and says, here, uh, yeah, to have one, you know, and you eat one, and, oh, man, this is great. You know, as far as the progression goes, when I first started doing opiates, you would have never caught me dead going downtown into, or in, into the west side to cop. It just wouldn't happen. I was I would have paid a, I paid extra to buy it through someone else I trusted or someone that went down and got it and I would get it from them and I knew they were, you know, skimming off the top. I knew they were taking an extra one. I knew they were cheating me a bit, but that's the price you pay. After a while, because of the economics of it, you you just say, Well, oh, well, I know how to do this and then you enter those neighborhoods, the exact ones you see in the wire, you know. In the end, you know, I had, I was the person, I would have people contacting me because they knew I was going right into the middle of the shit to get the best stuff and I would be the one skimming off the top and, and, and buying, you know, uh, for other people so I could make extra money and make for myself. But um, the thing in, in Baltimore, like when you're on the west side, like for me walking down the street, it, the dealers see you and I'm skinny, you know, my, my cheekbones are sticking out. It's obvious. You know what I mean? They'll be like, Hey, white boy, white boy, yo, come here. Let me give you a tea. Let me give you a tea. They want a tease for tester because they want to give you something. So you become, cause when they see it's just the way, it's just the, the way it works. When they see a white dude, they think big money because in their neighborhoods, generally, the the existing junkie population is an older and like just a broke down population they're people in their 50s 40s to 60s that just don't have money and they're buying you know a, a ten dollar pill at a time but the white boys from the suburbs come in they're dropping a hundred two hundred dollars every time the thing the thing about the wire that was wrong that had it totally wrong is that there isn't a very well, there, there, yeah, there isn't a really strong gang structure in Baltimore. So block by block, you're just dealing with whatever kids decide to hold that block down. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. There's territories, and of course, murders happen, and there are crews that hold blocks and areas. But, like, I know personally of, like, the, the, the hot spot for dope in Baltimore and from block to block, it could change who was selling there uh, month to month. For the crumbs. Yeah, right. So we have one scene where D'Angelo brings uh, his baby mama, Danette, <laughs> <laughs> to, to a restaurant, to a posh restaurant. 
and immediately kind of they feel he feels out of place. Donette doesn't really feel out of place because uh, she's just like we've got money to spend here, but Dianzo kind of feels the burden of his upbringing, bringing a guest in a place where it's posh. He doesn't know how things work in a restaurant. He doesn't know how to how the dessert cart works. Yeah, what an idiot. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know. I, didn't know <laughs> I wouldn't have known that either. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know how it works. Why, why can't you just take the, the dessert Sample that's on top things. of it? Yeah. yeah. And also, there's a, there's a moment where, you know, he asks if, we can be, if he can be seated at a, near a window. Yeah. And the waiter says, no, those are for customers who are preserved. And he goes, oh, okay, and, and sits down. And then uh, Danette basically, like, chews him out. Like, you should have pushed the point there. You're a badass and all this. But I, fa- I really... I really empathised with D'Angelo in that moment because that's how I, that's how I sort of act in restaurants as well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like to challenge anything. No, no. Uh, like I've, I felt like if, if you know, I just take, sit where I'm told. Uh, I, I don't like if, if the food isn't good and the waiter asks you, "Is everything all right?" I'm still like, "Oh, it's yeah, fine, it's thank you." Pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think he did well by asking to move to a different place. But fair enough, he's not used to that world and he didn't make a reservation, so. Yeah, them's the rules. Yeah, exactly. It's just like the game, yo. It's the restaurant game. There's rules in the game. Boy, don't nobody give a damn about you and your story. You got money, you get to be whatever you say you are. That's the way it is. Oh, sir, I'm sorry. These are the samples. And for you, sir? Very good. Okay, there's a couple of things um, which um, bothered me in this episode. Bothered you? Yeah, not really bothered me. Okay, but I was quite distracted by it. First of all, I was really distracted by Barksdale's shirt. Do you remember this? Do you remember the shirt in this episode? He had like, it looked like Iron Man was on it or something. Oh, really? Or, um, but, or it was like a, some sort of robot thing. Uh, and it was really like, but it was so wrinkled. I couldn't quite make out what it was, so I spent a lot of Barksdale scenes like just trying to make out what his shirt was. I don't know. I'm gonna have to check that out again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's put it up on the on the Twitter. We can put up a picture of this shirt up. If anyone can figure out what this is and where I can get one, you want to. So that's the thing. Yeah. You were distracted because you wanted to find it. I just kind of wanted to know what it was. I want to know because someone's shirt tells a lot about them. What what uh, what sort of pop culture references are on your shirt? So yeah. I felt like I wanted to know more about Barksdale's. Uh, pop culture leanings I wanted to get inside his head <laughs> she wanted a bit of insight into Barksdale's mind alright yeah I thought he might have been like a Marvel fan I like the I mean it's a good point you talked about the shirt there because one thing I really noticed uh, and this is a good episode that highlights that is how Stringer Bell works in different contexts so when he's talking to the guys in the in the pits he's dressing like them he's dressing with the baggy clothes yeah. dressing with the with the with the hoodies and the and the and the jumpers and stuff like that but when He's in the office. He's in the back room. He's got his tailored shirts on and and a, and a trousers on and stuff like that. Business bell. It's business bell, and <laughs> he gets all Lester Freeman back there. This is it. So this is this is early indications of how Stringer Bell works. He's trying to work up the chain. He's trying to. He's a chameleon here, but he understands how the game works, and he's he knows that when he's going forward into other environments, i.e., in working with politics and working with politicians, that he needs to dress to play the part. And people respect him. That's what. That's one of the reasons he's so dangerous because he wears different clothes. <laughs> <laughs> never trust a man. He never trust a man who has multiple different outfits. But then, yeah, like Avon, Avon Bartsdale, he just wears the same clothes all the time. He, he, wherever he is, he wears the same kind of baggy clothes with the random 
he's got a he's got a very individual style. Yeah, the clothes are so baggy. I feel like that's a very early late nineties, early noughties thing. Isn't it, it is yeah. almost like Stone Roses. <laughs> <laughs> From the start, Avon and Stringer are just. I think they're just the coolest combination. I, I put them together just because Stringer Bell. I love again the rareness of a portrayal of not only a criminal but a hood criminal, a projects criminal going to college to learn how to do it better, to do business better and all this kind of thing. And and Avon is just it's just cool as all hell. Again, I I think he's incredibly cool. I think he's just got that he's cutthroat and nasty, but they're just a great a combination together of st- stringer with the the business acumen and and the wanting to strive and Avon with just the pure um leader of the pride nature in him and again i love the conflict that when that comes to the point that that you realize that stringer is striving to get out of there and avon isn't that's exactly where he wants to be it's where he's meant to be yeah i love them speaking of stringer bell um something i noticed this episode and now i can't like unsee it and i see it every time stringer bell's on screen he never makes eye contact with people when he's talking. He doesn't to them. actually, does he? <laughs> no, he kind of just like looks. He always looks away to the side and like looks to the ground. Uh, I think it's like is it? It's almost like a power thing, isn't it? It's like he refuses to, or it's like just trying to look really cool. Or I mean, it does look pretty cool. It does look yeah. pretty cool. Um, I feel like if I did it, I would just look rude. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't know why that is, but it, it does work. It does kind of set his authority. Because I think one 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 option for showing you're the boss is to look people square in the eye, mm. but for Stringer Bell, he's like he's making sure he's got his. I think it's part of him being cautious. Cautious, yeah. yeah. He's always taking in his surroundings, maybe yeah, knowing exactly, so he knows exactly what's going on. And we're seeing there's some scenes in other episodes coming forward that in future episodes which are brilliant, uh, where he does the same kind of thing with other characters. But yeah, he's, he's he knows exactly what's going on. It doesn't feel a need. Maybe it's just also looking down on it's D'Angelo in this case. Yeah. In a way, he's, he's looking down on him. He doesn't feel he needs you to look him down. don't deserve eye contact yeah. kind of thing. Or maybe he's like Jason Bourne. He's always looking for the exits. He's always looking for the exits <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from the pits. <laughs> and this is the first time we get D'Angelo asks out Chardine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a good scene. Yeah. Yeah, I like that um, uh, we see her sort of having this... Uh, Interaction with a dude who's saying that he's, she stole twenty dollars from him. So we're back in the world's crappiest, crappiest strip. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> who goes there? <laughs> it's just depressing. Oh, and we get a little bit of Orlando, the yeah. o- the, the owner. He yeah. kind of tells D'Angelo that he's just a front man and he doesn't make any money either. It's very grim. And uh, and yeah, Chardine sort of diffuses this situation by giving the guy. $20, D'Angelo asks him, so did you did take his money? And she says no. And I think that t- says a lot about her character. Yeah. In that one in that one short scene, we see we see where Chardine kind of allies herself. Allies herself. And she's, she's really nice, Chardine. I like her. I think she's a good, yeah, I think she's a good person. In a bad situation. In a bad situation, yeah, yeah. Who just wants the easy, she just wanted to defuse that situation in the easiest way possible. She doesn't like conflict. Should we talk about McNulty trying to assemble a like furniture? I think we <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. Except I've never tried it with a, like half a bottle of whiskey down me. So yeah, McNulty so Minulty is looking forward to having his kids stay with him. It's quite sweet really. It is, yeah. yeah. 
and it shows it, it kind of it does give that insight into him. But he he goes to IKEA, comes back with a fuck ton of IKEA stuff. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene of yeah. him just chucking it through the door <laughs> while singing some old Irish ditty. And, if, and yeah, starts putting together this IKEA stuff with a with a bottle of Jameson's. <laughs> yeah. Nolte is like one of the other biggest addicts in the show. Here's Gabriella Jones, podcast producer at The Guardian. And and, and it's really interesting because Bubbles is McNulty's future. Like the way he drinks, like he's an addict too. He uses alcohol, he misuses alcohol, he abuses alcohol in a really big way throughout the show and you can see him losing control. He uses it to change the way he feels when he feels bad. Like that, that, those are the beginnings of addiction. Arguably he is already an alcoholic and he's already lost control of his relationship with alcohol and he's just not, he's just so unaware of it and it's so sad when you look at it that way it's just like bubbles is you jimmy like if you carry on drinking like you're drinking you will be on the street too and like give it like six months like everyone it's that classic like line of like everyone's two wrong choices away or three wrong choices wrong decisions away from being homeless when was the last time you put an ikea stuff together it's about two years ago. And oh, really? The, the memories still haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever consider doing it with a, with a quarter of Jameson? No, your, yeah. I feel like doing anything with a quarter of Jameson inside you is just more difficult. And he's, um, he's putting together a bunk bed for yeah. his kids. That's a, that's a lot of effort. Oh, massively. That's the kind of thing where I'd be like, okay, I know I need to do this. I've gone to Ikea. I've bought it. But that's the kind of thing I put off and put off until like the last moment. <laughs> yeah. And I'll wake up on a Sunday morning... Like a stone cold sober because I know I need to pay attention because no matter what happens, I'm going to have 28 screws on my floor, but the bunk bed still somehow is is upright. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of thinking, which kid's going to die? Because they're, <laughs> because they're going to fall through the slats. And I've gone through the instructions. and I, don't, I think I've put it together, but how come I've got so many screws left? And he's just wantonly doing it with, with uh, whilst he's... With, whilst it's completely lit. How many screws do you think he had left there? <laughs> dozens. Yeah, dozens of yeah. screws. <laughs> At least 48. <laughs> um, but actually, the, yeah. the end result of that was like, there's a scene at the end of this where he's sitting in the bunk beds. He's lying in the bunk beds, And they yeah. look amazing. Yeah. Like, I don't believe that he did. Maybe he performs better with some Jameson inside. Well, maybe he's just a, yeah. an Ikea genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the room looked amazing. Well, he did posters they? up there and everything. Yeah. Like, exceeded himself. Well done, McNulty. Well done. Hello guys, uh, my favorite character in The Wire is uh, Major Rolls. Uh, he's ambivalent, he's rigged, and in the same time he's uh, showing some uh, unexpected uh, human uh, reactions and uh, he's pretty much uh, what The Wire is. Not black, not white. He's very grey in many, in many ways. So uh, yeah, thank you for the podcast, my name is Thibaut. This is uh, live from uh, Jawa Timur, East Jawa, Indonesia, and I appreciate uh, to go back through any all the episodes of the, this wonderful uh, series with you guys. Uh, my Twitter account is at Shakespeare. Thank you, guys. And that was a voicemail that was left on our burner phone. Yes, we have an untraceable burner phone, and if you want, you can leave us a voice memo using WhatsApp from anywhere in the world for free. Just head to our Facebook or Twitter page to get all the details in our bio. And remember, just let us know your name, where you're from, your Twitter account if you have one, and just leave us a short and sweet message. This week, we want to know who introduced you to The Wire. Okay, guys, that about sums it up for episode five. Next week, please come back, and we're going to be talking and watching season one, episode six, The Wire. 
And if you have a minute, uh, please pop into iTunes and leave us a nice review. It really helps us get uh, noticed. And we've been reading all the reviews we've been getting so far. Thank you to everyone who's done it. Yeah. And if you do want to chat to us generally, we are human people. Um, head to our Facebook or Twitter page um, or Instagram and use at the wire strip to find us. Or send us an email. We've had some fantastic emails from you guys. Genuinely, it's been amazing hearing from you. Our email is burner at wirestripped.com that's burner at thewirestripped.com and thanks again to all our guests who took the time to chat to us about The Wire yeah uh, many thanks to Tom who is the third member the third musketeer behind The Wire Stripped as a crap producer and editor yes I do I also like to think of us as musketeers <laughs> bravely <laughs> defending the, the world from what I <laughs> what I don't know <laughs> From uh, bad quality television. Um, and uh, you might have noticed our, our nice logo and graphics. They were done by the brilliant Izzy Lawrence. And on top of the logos, you also heard the awesome theme tune that was done by Sam and Martin from Song by Song Podcast, which you're listening to right now. So thanks to everyone who's involved and thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.